This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey everyone, welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood sports and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current big law media attorney. And I'm your other co-host, Amesh Lakani. Still feeling the effects of Barbenheimer, Paul. I just looked up the latest numbers and Barbie is approaching a billion dollars. I think they just crossed 700 million and Oppenheimer is crossed 300 million. I feel like it's gaining more steam. I was just actually, I'm in DC visiting family and I looked up what the local AMC was doing for Oppenheimer. Couldn't get a ticket for Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Same thing with Barbie. Like I was talking, like I was looking at like 11 a.m. showings. Can't get a ticket. Second weekend still s- selling out. That's that's wild. I know it's been like a runaway success. Both films, Barbie exceptionally so. Christopher Nolan is definitely he's established. I'm not surprised that Oppen- although it is three hours and it's historical, but Barbie, yeah, it's a phenomenon. It's a really well done movie, and like we said last week, like a fresh take, hidden meanings, deep for Mattel starting a cinematic universe it couldn't have gone better yeah people are they keep talking about it i was just hanging out with a friend and he said that he watched both movies on the same day there's people out there that want to still go see it i saw oppenheimer during the week it was excellent look i think it's like marvel fatigue superhero fatigue there's movies that other people want to go see original screenplays that people get excited about and we talked about this last week People want more of this. I hope Hollywood takes like a, a message of this and be like, let's get more of these like original type movies out there. Well, did you see how great this has been for IMAX? IMAX's CEO has been like lauding the performance and saying it's a paradigm shift. Like we're back and their stock is doing really well and they're profitable this quarter. And so great. They'll pay extra for that high quality experience. 70 millimeter there's just not a lot of those theaters, especially in New York, but uh, definitely seems to be worth it. I mean, New York, look, there's one theater that shows it. It's Lincoln Center. And again, same friend that I was talking to, he went and watched it. I think it was like 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. on a Friday. He saw it seven, 70 millimeters and he says, go watch it again and go watch it in 70 millimeter IMAX. He's like, it's going to blow you away, which I might do. You know, I, I know a few people who've already gone to see both movies twice. Wow. I just love it, man. I love that people are excited about the movies that is not related to DC, Marvel or Star Wars. It's refreshing. Speaking of that, Seth Rogen 
has got a new movie coming out next week, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem. That's right. And he did a relatively in-depth interview about, people may not realize, but he actually has some comic success, yes. right? So yes. he's done The Boys and now this and, and a few other projects. And so he's a comic book nerd, no, yeah. grew up going to comic book stores and just like walking around. And he's been decidedly trying to avoid doing yeah. anything Marvel DC yeah. because he's like, I'm my own producer. Like I have a process yes. that works for me. I know that they have processes. They seem to be incredibly successful, but I don't know that their process is my process. And I'm like kind of afraid of trying to like work with them. I think it's kind of goes back to James Gunn thing, right? The last good Marvel or superhero movie that's come out in a while was Guardians 3. And of course, like, uh, and we'll get into um, Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse because it relates to like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But I think that he has a process in terms of how he wants to do things, as he said. And Marvel also has their process in terms of having to fit things into this big universe. And I think what was so good about Guardians is Guardians didn't really have to do that to like that extent. Like Guardians fit into other movies, but when James Gunn did his Guardians movie, it's like it's the James Gunn's Guardian movies. And I think for like a Seth Rogen, well, why do a Marvel movie when there's so many people gunning for that? when you can take an existing franchise with the built-in audience. And we've already seen that with Super Mario Brothers. We just saw it with Barbie. Let's make an animated movie that we have complete control over and do it well. And I think we saw that with Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, right? Like it was a huge, huge success. These animated movies are very, very popular. And I think with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I mean, this dates back to 87. It's had a great run and I'm excited to 84. see. 84. Sorry, is it 84? Oh, I, I didn't realize yeah. it was 84. It, yeah, 80s. I mean, so here's the thing. I mean, I, I don't think it's impossible for him to do a great Marvel or DC movie. I think there's probably a way to make that work, but it's like would Marvel's probably unlikely to compromise. DC's probably unlikely to compromise. But I think Paramount got the rights to Teenage Mutant yeah. Ninja Turtles in 2009. So yeah. it was created, comic created by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, kind of as a joke to like spoof superheroes. So there's like the turtles, they come across like something radioactive, then they get like these abilities, plus they're ninjas. And, and they're teenagers. Uh, you know, teenagers, uh, you know, fighting crime in New York. I remember the animated series amazing. and the early, the mid 90s movies. I think the first one was a, like huge smash hit. hit. And then there was less and less. I, what, which one was Vanilla Ice in? The so one that was first? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Return of the Ooze, which I remember watching Super on Shredder. Super Shredder. Funny enough, who was played by Kevin Nash, the wrestler. I found this out like later in life. But, you know, it's funny. As a kid, I thought that movie was amazing. But it, wa it was like an interesting way. There were costumes. Go Ninja, puppets, Go Ninja, and, go. Yes, Go Ninja, van Vanilla Ice, like uh, uh, at yeah. his peak. But I think, you know, the 80s and early 90s for the show, I mean, the, the cartoon ran as a... Everybody had the toys. Everyone had the toys, and the cartoon ran successfully to promote those toys and became its own animal. Ten seasons they ran, then they had the movies, and then, as you said, they sold to Viacom. And then Nickelodeon started producing, like, an animated series from 2012 to 2017. Obviously, there were the Michael Bay films. I ignore those movies. I have not seen those oh, movies. Oh, the 2016 Out of the Shadows? Yeah, like, I have not watched any of those movies. People kind of thought that that might have been the, the death of the franchise. Yeah. And then... This, depending on how this goes, Mayhem could be the resurrection. And I I like, you said, 
into the Spider-Verse, yes. across the Spider-Verse. Because it's gritty, animated, I think they have a little bit more freedom yeah. in what they can do versus live action. It has a 97 on Rotten Tomatoes as of now. The estimated weekend box office, so it's opening August 2nd. The box office estimates are ranging between 30 and 50 million yeah, uh, would- domestic. And the budget is rumored to be around 80 million. So what they're hoping for, I think they would be thrilled if it performed like into the Spider-Verse. Well, I think it's interesting because it is Seth Rogen and it's Point Grey Pictures, which is Seth Rogen, Evan Goldberg and James Weaver. I mean, these guys just make hits, man. Like they know how to make. Movies. I love Sausage Party. I, I thought that was. I love Sausage so Party too. hilarious. Like I, I was like hurt my stomach. I was and, and there's rumors so that, that there movie. was supposed to be a Sausage Party too. We haven't seen it yet, but these guys have done animation before. They've done movies before. I mean, super bad. Super this bad. Is this is the end. I mean, yeah. You have neighbors like knocked up. Obviously, uh, there is something I read that the person directing it, Jeff Rowe, who's known for Rick and Morty, and then Brendan O'Brien, who did the screenplay, did The Hangover and Neighbors. And then not only that, you have this star-studded cast. You have Jackie Chan, Ayo Edabiri. She's April. She's April, who's obviously in, in the hit show The Bear, season one and two. Ice Cube, Seth Rogen, John Cena, Paul Rudd, Rose Byrne, Post Malone, Hannibal Burris, Maya Rudolph, and then Giancarlo Esposito. Esposito. Your boy from uh, Better Call Saul. Better Call and Saul Breaking and Breaking Bad, Bad yeah. Like, this is a stacked cast. And then the other thing was that Seth Rogen- Did you say Post Malone? I said Post Malone. Oh, wow, yeah. The other thing is that Seth Rogen said in an interview, like, this is about teenage turtles. They're always played by adults, and they got this- young cast to play these characters and they had them film it together and like build a bond amongst each other. So, and visually it looks pretty cool. It does. It looks cool. If it's anywhere near as funny as Sausage Party, it's going to be hilarious, but I I think it'll be great. I mean, I'm 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 looking forward to seeing it. There's not a single Seth Rogen movie that I I could say I dislike. So I think his floor is pretty high and there's some that I absolutely love. So, yeah, I'd be excited. I think Paramount stumbled into something. Obviously, they have the IP, so they have a lot of flexibility. But, you know, the heads of Nickelodeon and and Paramount Animation were like, hey, we want to make this. We want to make it cool. Who's the right person to to do this? And I think they found it. And I think it's a good business move for Seth Rogen, who's, again, going back to like, you don't have to compete with these with the Marvel folks or the DC folks. This is like another studio and a, and a platform. Well, he is competing because they've announced a sequel and there's going to be a Paramount Plus TV right, series Right, but, also. But, but that's what I mean. Like in terms of they're giving him free range to do that and he's part of the Paramount Plus series and the sequel. So it's like this guy set up a deal where he gets to take an existing franchise do something great with it and potentially like really set himself up, you know, not only do this with this franchise, but other franchises as well, where he'll, I think he's basically trying to say, give me the freedom. We'll go knock this out of the park. Continue to give us the freedom. We'll go knock other stuff out of the park. Yeah. I mean, they're established. They've, they've been writing for like 20 years. So even if this is a miss, it's not going to derail his career. But I think if it's a hit, then obviously you're right. Then it sets up Paramount really well to build out more sequels, more TV shows, more property. And he's going to maintain autonomy, which is always what you want. Well, Paul, let's take a quick break and uh, we'll get back and we'll give the update on what's going on with SAG. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. 
So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, Mesh, this is pretty wild. Just an update on what's going on. So, as we talked about, for the past few months, WJ has been on strike. And for the past two weeks or so, two to three weeks, SAG has also been on strike, meaning that their agreements with the major studios, the AMPTP, have expired, and they were trying to renegotiate and do another three-year deal. And the two sides have not agreed on things like minimum compensation, escalation, residuals, data sharing, AI. We've talked about issues in play in prior episodes, so feel free to check those out. But what's happening now, so it's come to light that SAG has actually given 100 projects the okay to move forward during the strike. They're called interim agreements. So basically SAG has said they can approve actors working on productions that meet the criteria of interim agreements. So if it's an indie produced film or TV show, that is truly independent, and I'm putting air quotes around the word truly, and they have agreed to comply with whatever term SAG ultimately agrees to with the AMPTP on a retroactive basis, then they can move forward. And so it's like splitting the baby, and I think in a way it's like allowing some projects to proceed, and I said up to 100 have been approved. They're not all necessarily going into production, but they are moving forward in some capacity. And they've also allowed people to start doing informal casting and showing up to do casting, potentially negotiating deals to work on these films. They may not necessarily travel or get to start rehearsing until they get approval from SAG. But if you look at the list of things that have received interim agreements, it's actually like there's two A24 projects, Mother Mary, Death of a Unicorn. There's Tehran, which is a- Apple uh, Plus. Israeli show filmed in Greece, but it's for Apple TV Plus. Viola Davis is doing a project for MRC that's going to be distributed by Amazon. So if you look at the list and you're wondering, like, how independent are these really, right? Well, because like Matthew McConaughey has got a movie, Rivals of uh, Mzia King, Dust Bunny with Scorny Weaver, Brideheart with Rebel Wilson. Like, these are pretty big stars. What What is, like, where is that distinguished? And Tehran apparently has a $5 million an episode budget. So it's not exactly, like, a tiny show. How do they distinguish what is, like, truly independent, though? I'm, I'm curious. I wonder how that works. So we can tell you what SAG's statement is, but based on what I'm seeing and hearing, like, a lot of actors, including Sarah Silverman, released a, a pretty harshly worded critique on her Instagram. So some SAG actors think this is BS, right? Because it's like completely undermines the purpose of the strike. When you allow content to be made and movie stars to work, then, you know, really what are you depriving the the streamers of, right? If they're just going to buy these movies once they're produced. 
So that's like the counter argument. What SAG is saying is, well, if they're not a member of the AMPTP going into production, then we maybe don't have a, a dispute with them, right? If they agree to our terms, which is the let, in their view, it's the last proposal they made to the AMPTP. If they agree to that and they're not owned by one of the AMPTP members, then they can move forward because we're getting what we want, essentially. So that's SAG's take on it. But hey, actually, we're encouraging people to work under interim agreements because what it shows is that our demands are not unreasonable, right? Like the AMPTP, when, and as voiced by Bob Iger a few weeks ago, said, hey, you know, the, the talent is just unrealistic. They don't know yeah. what they're asking for and why it doesn't work for the business. And this is like the worst time to ever strike. And so Duncan's response is like, hey, if it was unrealistic, why would all these indies agree to it, right? And so they're saying that what they're asking for is reasonable. But in reality, legally, I don't know if they've agreed to anything, right? right? right. Because we don't know what ultimately the deal is going to be. And we don't know when the strike's going to end. And the question, the, the big question is, do all these interim agreements help SAG or hurt SAG? I know a lot of people are unhappy about it, especially members of below the line crew, which we'll talk about in the next segment. But movie stars like Matthew McConaughey, probably if he didn't work for a few six years. or seven years, years would probably yeah. still be okay, right? Yeah. Like he's done a lot. He's a big star. Even his like endorsements, I'm sure he makes a fair amount of money on. But then the background actors, day players, below the line crew, some of the writers, people who can't work, like they're really struggling during the strike. And I don't know that these interim agreements are really helping them. But is there a pro here where it's like, I get the whole argument of how do you have a strike and negotiate when you're allowing for certain movies to get made, but there's still people that it's tough for them to be on strike and not get paid. And, you know, there's jobs available here for people to be working on. You still have like cast, crew, you know, all the support that goes with that. And so there's still jobs that people can have and get paid for during the strike. Is there like an angle there for that? Like, is that why they're also saying, is it kind of like, hey, we're, we're kind of throwing you a bone here? I think to a degree, I mean, someone would have to really do the analysis and research into like what percentage of people are still out of work, what percentage of people are hurting, what percentage of people are not getting unemployment during this period. But it does seem like it is an effort to make a compromise to allow certain things to move forward. So yes, some people are working on these hundred projects. There's going to be some crew, obviously. I don't know if any writing is allowed to be done on them. Right, so right. maybe the scripts had to be locked. But um, certainly below the line in ancillary industries, some of them have to be working on these things. But also big movie stars are, are working on it. Well, I think that's to your earlier point. Like not only big movie stars, but a, a Apple TV Plus show and A24, which an is Amazon. You know, an Amazon show. Like there's, right. And A24 is like private equity and right, hedge fund right. owned. So it's like how independent really are they? I guess they are, but they also have resources. And so I think it to me, it does seem like you're breaking the strike. Like you're just kind of like caving, but they've said, okay, yeah, we'll ultimately be bound by whatever you end up agreeing to with the AMPTP. But I don't know if it makes the AMPTP more likely to concede or less likely to concede because if if they're getting content, because I don't know if, if there's, um if SAGs are saying, well, okay, well, you can't sell this movie to Netflix. You can't sell this movie right, to right, Disney. Right. I don't know if they have control over that, but I think if Netflix had a production company, they would not be able to get an interim agreement. But if some production company had a deal with Netflix and was like, hey, go make this movie and we'll buy it from you when it's done. Like, I don't know that SAG's going to 
get in the way. I just don't know. So I, I see your point in that it's like a half measure. It's better that some people are working than not working for those people. But the whole point is, I think, to deprive the studios of the top level talent to help get leverage for everyone. And yeah. if you're not doing that, I think it, it does weaken the position. Well, this is what happens. I mean, I, I've, I've done this a few times now, but when you're, when you're um, like, you bring in something where like the UFC, for example, like MMA fighters, like a lot of them are fighting for like a fighter union to get paid better and, you know, get more percentage of profits from pay-per-views and the sponsor. And then you're, you really want the like Conor McGregor's of the world to support that. But they're like, listen, I've got my own business here. I'm running, like, I don't really need this. And I think when you look at it from a business perspective and you're an independent production house and you still have bills to pay and you've got money out on the line and you're making movies, like you got to still get it done. And I, and I wonder if that's like the angle for a lot of these folks, like we're going to lose a ton of money if we cannot, they don't have those deep pockets. Right. But then doesn't the AMPTP ultimately win? Right. Because if this thing goes on indefinitely and then the AMPTP says, okay, well fine, we just won't make movies. We'll just buy them after right. some independent company makes them and we'll somehow figure out the financing. I mean, it could just become a loophole that swallows everything. I don't know. I mean, SAG, clearly they have to approve the interim agreement and the interim arrangement. So it's not like the floodgates are going to necessarily open automatically. But it does seem like this could become a status quo, which would ultimately not result in a long-term solution. Okay, so random thought here, and I'm not sure if this works this way, and I, and I don't work, like, I, I don't really get the details of how, like, these production houses work when they sell it to a studio, but, like, if now big studios are not making anything because of the strike and there is some type of arbitrage opportunity for like there's still a bunch of movies to be made and there's a small time period here where like independent financiers could fund a bunch of movies independently, quote unquote, and then know that they could sell that to studios because studios won't have like they still need content and then they can just buy it versus, you know, them financing their own things. Like, I wonder if that's. Like there's something going on through some people's minds who are like, hey, let's go find a bunch of movies with some interesting actors in it. And we could just probably sell this and flip it over to an Amazon or a Netflix down the road. And and not saying that's supportive of the strike. It's more of like a, a business. Being opportunistic. Decision. Being opportunistic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, uh, listen, I think this is a market disruptive event, right? So if someone was looking at the rate of return and the likelihood, because in the past, like if there wasn't a strike, Netflix... Disney, Amazon, whoever, they probably, yes, they do buy third-party finished product, but they also produce their own stuff. Right. And so if they're not allowed to produce their own stuff, then they theoretically buy, they'll buy, buy more, more of it. So yeah. the price of it will go higher. And so then the rate of return and the risk in is less. funding something independently is less. Yes, so exactly. sure, like if this thing were to continue indefinitely, then I think it would have an impact on the market. And I think Clearly, people, some people on the cutting edge are like, hey, you know, we got a small fund. We can put this together. We have connections to Matthew McConaughey or whoever. We can get a couple actors, put this thing together and sell it because we know there's going to be a huge market if this strike drags on. Yeah, I, I think that is an interesting take on it. But we'll take a break and then we'll get back to like the other piece of this, which we have started talking about, but the AI aspect of how all this works with the strike. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, 
with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. So, Mesh, we talked about IATSE, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. It's another union like SAG, WGA, DGA, but it represents essentially crew. And it's a lot of different crews. So animation, makeup artists, grips, I think Teamsters, set design. So people who are behind the camera doing essential functions to make content, but are not necessarily household names. So... That's really what the IATSE is. It's like a below-the-line right. crew union. And they, like all the other major unions in entertainment, have deals with the studios that go for like three to four years. IATSE's deal expires in 2024, and so they're going to start negotiating next year. And in advance of that, they released a few weeks ago their core principles on AI and machine learning, yep. which is their approach as a union to AI and machine learning. And this has been met with some, I mean, this is a very hot button and divisive issue. So some IATSE members are saying, we were not expecting this. What we were expecting is like a much more- Harsh. Harsh condemnation yeah. of AI, like yeah. ban AI. We don't, AI has no place in entertainment. But I think the IATSE knew- yeah that that wasn't a workable solution because it's almost like if you're unwilling to embrace progress, then you're going to be left behind. Totally. And to act like this advancement wasn't going to happen and they were going to just completely ban it isn't is not really a workable solution. So what they're the approach they're taking is is really more balanced and nuanced. They're saying, well, we want to research this. We have our core principles and we acknowledge that it is a revolutionary tool. And so we want to understand it in a way that we can enable and leverage it to make better creative output in a way that helps our workers and doesn't eliminate jobs or compromise our workers. Yes. And and IATSE represents, I think it's about 160,000 plus entertainment workers from grips to animation makeup. This is how I feel about people. And you can't like when they say progress or they don't want to, there is someone who is quoted in the article that we read that people don't want AI to be a tool. They, they don't want it to be part of their creative process because once you start using a tool, it replaces workers. Just generally that whole argument of trying to like say ban AI to me is so ridiculous because that's like saying when Final Cut Pro came out that you shouldn't be using this for editing or Photoshop came out, you shouldn't be using this for edit. These are all tools that people have used that have like enhanced their job made it better, given them more, you know, potential to do more work. And there is a balance, of course, but to go out and say to straight up ban it is a little bit, it's just a little bit ridiculous and it's going to happen one way or another. And there are tons of, like, we've seen this for a long time in film and TV and like every other industry, like 
we want faster computers. We get a smartphone, like all the things that get unlocked. And I don't want to sound like that super pro tech guy, but there are a lot of potential unlocks here that I've been been reading about and you have to embrace it. Here's the thing. I mean, it's almost like these things happen in waves and I'm, I'm not as pro tech as you, but I, I'm sure there was a time where people were anti-email, where people were anti, um, they were like, oh, you know, can you trust it? You get too much information, it's too instantaneous. Like they were sticking to faxing documents or whatever it was that they were doing, mailing them. And so like how much has industry evolved with technology? Like people didn't have little computers in their pockets at all times, but now we do. So I think AI is just another step in that progression, but I it now we're closer to a point where it can make people obsolete or it can change the cost of labor in a dramatic way. I don't think I knew this at the time, but in preparing for the episode, I saw that Lord of the Rings yes, used yes. some sort of like AI or yes. machine learning to create those epic armies yes. for the big battle scenes, right? So it wasn't like, and I remember watching it thinking, how do they have that many, that many people. people on set? Yeah. Like, yeah, like, like there's like, and plus though, there's, there's like not necessarily, it's not all humans, right? Like there's all different kinds of creatures that are fighting. And so apparently that was an algorithm. For years, people have been using algorithms to curate content and recommend things to you. Well, the the Netflix algorithm, recommendation algorithm, and spot it's all AI at the end of the day. It's been there for a long time. I think my camera phone, when you turn it up to the max resolution, uses AI to create a higher resolution than the lens will allow. Right, so right. it's in everything right. to a degree, but animators in particular, and 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 so. I get what you're saying. So if like if you can put, throw in a couple prompts and inputs and create some like animated work, I could see how someone would say, "Well, this takes me less time, you know, three weeks to yeah. do, and you can do it with this machine in five minutes." And that that is very concerning, right? Because the, the value of your labor has just been decimated. So I get the concern. Well, imagine you're like an animation house and you're given a deadline and you're not getting paid. You're getting paid the same amount of money. You're rate. getting paid a flat rate yeah. and you're, you're working now like 24 hours a day. You have to meet this deadline. And the, the uh, example that you gave for Peter Jackson's um, Lord of the Rings, that's exactly where you use essentially like machine learning and AI to create the extra work that you wouldn't have to do. They've talked about this argument in gaming, for example. Like when you're in a game, let's say GTA, and there's like, there's so many details in this in this world and you go into a house and there's all these different variations of chairs and carpets or whatever it might be. They're saying like, well, one designer could only, you know, they could create like one or two things and then they can use like some type of AI tool to like, make like a hundred or a thousand different variations of that, which now just unlocks a whole new, like, okay, that person can get it done in a short period of time. They can still get, you know, they're not, they're getting paid for that. And then they can get paid potentially for the hours that they have left. That is like the pro argument for that. And I think at the end of the day, like if you don't like, it's like if you are still on a typewriter when word processor came out, and you didn't, you were like, oh, I hate this thing. I'm not going to do it. But then millions of people started doing word processor. Yeah, you're going to be left behind. At some point, you have to like engage new technology no matter what 
industry you're in, the the thing is that it's gonna happen. My argument is like it's gonna happen. So you might as well like embrace it. And then in this case, like like in terms of the core principles here, provide core principles that are gonna protect you and then potentially gonna benefit you in the future. But like you can't just go ahead and say, like, let's just ban this thing because someone else is gonna do it better. And at the end of the day, this comes down to like money, unfortunately. Right. These studios of public companies, they have shareholders that they have like that are like breathing down their necks on making things profitable. They're looking to cut costs. So no matter what, they're going to do that. So I'm not going to name the company, but there's a large studio, streamer slash studio that is looking for AI leads, yes. right? AI product yeah. developers and paying and a they have lot of money, and they're they're paying a handsome Dude, rate for for it's like this. almost a million bucks. But that just shows you the value, yeah. right? Because if you can unlock it and if if you could let's say you use it, it you could use it to recommend stuff you could use it to create you could use it to uh help you decide whether to fund something or what not to and if like you said if you're just like no ban it ban it ban it we don't want you using it and you can't use our talent if you use ai then you're ultimately like you're gonna get left behind whereas if you're like so the the IATSEs, one of their principles is to research, and then they form this commission on artificial intelligence that's going to have like academics, people from potentially MIT and Stanford, uh, tech experts, maybe politicians, union members, people who are creating the content, and all of them are supposed to have dialogues about the pros, the cons, the approaches, what's yeah. out there. There's like a tool that can make your job easier. How can that be regulated, legislated in a way where it makes your job easier, but it doesn't make you obsolete, right? And so yeah. that's what they're trying to fine tune. And I agree with that. And I don't know how the, how you get uh, there. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd love to know that. I think a lot of industries are trying to answer that question. Like we want people, there are certain things that we I think people are not going to be replaceable for, but to the extent you can handle low hanging fruit or like a large volume of data, and leave the judgment calls and sort of like the creative part to a human and, and have the labor done by a machine. I think that's the balance that they're trying to yeah. hit, but who knows? Yeah, and look, it, I am very pro figuring out the right regulation to protect people and make sure that it's all fair. Like, for example, Stable Diffusion and Midjourney, two AI companies that do uh, it, like image creation AI, right? Like in Midjourney, you put the prompt in, Paul and Mesh sitting on a beach, sipping pina coladas and it puts an image out, right? And like there will be copyright issues around that potentially where if you say, show me a character that looks like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and then you have this other character that's based on these other characters, like where is the copyright law in that? And you do need to figure out those tools. That said, those tools, you know, then you can use those tools to your advantage. And just going back to like, we didn't talk about much about like what's going on with streamers and, but there's like price increases happening. There's, you know, they have to cut costs. Like there is, again, like they are under the sky. Most streamers are not profitable. They're not profitable right? besides not. Netflix. Right. And, and it's not necessarily the actors or the talent's fault, right? It's some of it is just like the economics of the, the business. business. Like yes. they made too much. They charged too little. They were focused on growth. So that business has to evolve. But it doesn't mean that the the skies fall. A lot of people are are really concerned about whether we're an inflection point with the state of the business and will it continue uh, in, in a form that we recognize. And I don't know. But yes, the streamers say, hey, we're not profitable. We need to cut costs. And it's not just going to executive salaries. It is going to a lot of yeah. shows that maybe aren't performing 
And so some of them have algorithms that say, okay, well, we only need to make six episodes because if we do 20 episodes, like that's not going to increase our subscribers incrementally. Or we only need to do three seasons. We don't need to do seven seasons. Whereas, you know, in the network model, things just kept going as long as the ratings were high enough because they were selling ads against it. And, you know, people made more and more money. And if something hits indication, you made, you, it was like a winning the lottery. So that model has to be revisited. And I think there should be a way to do it that compensates people for the value of their contributions. But if it's tied to profit, then AI is going to be implemented in some form. Yeah. And what you don't want is you don't want these studios and platforms to not spend money on content. Because if they're not spending money on content, where is it going to get financed and who's going to distribute it? And then it's a whole other issue when it comes to like job creation within that industry. What you end up wanting them to do is like, let's, hey, we're going to actually do more into this because we've been able to cut the cost, but we can do like, you know, double the amount of shows. I'm just picking up random numbers because we've like figured out these tools. And it goes back again to like, we were talking about like not all streamers are profitable. Like Netflix is profitable, but they are, it's very, very tight. And I'm not saying, look, I think there's some CEOs out there. Absolutely. It's completely like, uh, what's it's tone deaf in the way they're going about things. But this is the difference between why you pay someone the big money to run a really, really great studio and do like exceptional things. And then I'm not going to name any names, but where we've seen like CEOs of platforms and, and studios that have done a terrible job at creating stuff and, and, and making mistakes left and right. There's no guarantee, right? So entertainment is a fickle business and the one or two major hits like a Seinfeld or a Friends or whatever was going to finance a lot of the shows that didn't pan out a lot of and some films. If, if one out of every five was a big hit, then that would then you just keep taking chances, understanding that not every single thing is a hit. But now there's more data and they only want to fund things that they think are going to perform and they think they can use the data yeah. to narrow the risk profile and the margin of error. And, and I think, look, going back to it, there is data. And then it's like I think what we saw this this these last two weekends there's like great movies to be made and you want people to continue to fund great movies like a Barbie or an Oppenheimer and like something more original. That's like, I don't know how much data was put into that, but it's basically like, let's bet on this director. Let's bet on this director and this cast. But we still need creativity. Yes. That's what I mean. You need creativity, not data. Right. It's very tricky. And I do hope that they figure out some things because I'm very, very pro regulation for AI and them figuring it out and people getting paid well and getting paid their value. Like that is very important. I mean, everything everywhere all at once was like 25 million. The whale was a handful of million. It was not a big budget. Marcel the Shell, I'm sure was not that Favorite much to movie. Make. Like you can make great things for not a lot of yeah. money, but big time movies and big time TV shows with special effects and big stars are expensive. Yes. And sometimes they're they're profitable, but they're not always. Yeah. Well, I think, Paul, good breakdown on everything. And we'll keep everyone up to date on, on what's going on. It's hard to break this down because we don't know, like, we, we don't know what's going on. Yeah, we, we just, don't know we what's have, going We're learning on. it uh, in real time with all of you. And these. we're making assumptions. Yeah. That's our show for this week, folks. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. Follow us at Better Call Paul, the podcast on Instagram, TikTok. Follow me on Twitter at Mesh Lacani. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera and assistant producer Lisa Sanders. Have a great week. Thanks, everyone.